We interrupt your broadcast to bring you an episode from the Stephen or Else Network of Truly Epic Podcast. Find more shows at StephenOrElse.com. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast that will often flex its steely thews, especially when no one else in the house can get the lid off the pickle jar. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and today we continue to tread them jeweled thrones of the Marvel Conan books with Conan the Barbarian issue number nine. This issue sports a cover date of September 1971, but it hit the stands in June. It sold for 15 cents. And the title of the story is The Garden of Fear. It was written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Sal Buscema, and the letters were by Sam Rosen. Into the boat! As the issue opens, Conan and Jenna are on the run, having escaped the magistrate's clutches in the previous issue. They are on horseback, both sharing the same horse and have been traveling for days along a range of mountains, when, as the mountains transition into gentle, rolling hills, they are attacked by a tribe of savage hill people. I am Lothar of the hill people! The hill men grab Jenna, and Conan starts throwing fists. He's holding his own until the chief of the hill people arrives, and in a language that neither Conan nor Jenna can understand, he orders his men to stop with all the fighting, and invites his new friends to accompany them back to their village. Join us, will you not? For I am Lothar of the Hill People! Again, Conan doesn't speak their language, but he susses out their intentions, and he chooses to trust them for now. Back at the Hill People village, they all eat dinner around the fire before the dancing begins. Conan joins in, throwing himself into the dance with reckless abandon. Later, with the celebrations at an end, The chief gives Jenna a gift of rope, a knife, and a flint for making fire. Conan thanks him while Jenna, in her greed, wonders out loud if they have any precious stones. Suddenly, a winged shape swoops in from out of the darkness and carries Jenna away, knocking Conan to the ground as the hill people stand around and do nothing. Much have I seen and much have I done. Conan, taking up the rope, knife, and flint, gives chase venturing into a valley where he comes across a herd of woolly mammoths. They allow Conan to walk among them, and soon he is beyond the valley, but entering another where he spies a tall, green tower surrounded by a field of flowers. Conan approaches the tower as a dark, winged man steps out onto a balcony near the top. The winged man is holding an unconscious hillman, which he tosses from the tower into the flowers below. The hillman, waking during the fall, begins screaming once he is among the flowers. Conan attempts to get to the man, but the flowers aren't just for smelling, Conan discovers, 
as they try to kill the barbarian who hacks away at the plants in desperation with his new knife. Eventually, realizing that he can't get through without dying, Conan backs away. The screaming then stops as the flowers turn from pink to red, and Conan realizes that the flowers ate the man, sucking out his blood to feed their greedy flower bellies. Conan, counting his lucky stars for surviving the floral nightmare, suddenly realizes that the winged man is still up there on the balcony looking down at the Sumerian. Then, to show Conan what's what, the winged man steps back into the tower, returning in moments, holding the limp form of Jenna. Then, as Conan watches in horror, the winged man dangles Jenna over the edge of the balcony, holding her out over the field of flowers by one arm, threatening to drop her if the barbarian doesn't back off. And so he does, leaving to return to the grassland in the previous valley and the mammoth herd. But Conan is no coward. No, he has a plan. Using the flint, he sets fire to the grassland, causing the mammoth herd to stampede through the man-eating flowers at the base of the tower, clearing his path to Jenna. Conan, using his final acquired item, the rope, climbs the tower. He's not able to make it to the balcony, however, before the winged man, sword in hand, flies down and attacks. Soon the two are fighting as Conan dangles from the rope, and Jenna, seeing that the barbarian needs help, throws a big piece of furniture, or a candle holder, or maybe even a sculpture of some sort. I don't know, can't really tell what it is, but she throws it out the window at the winged man, distracting him long enough for Conan to take the advantage. The two end up fighting on the roof of the tower, a storm raging all around them, until eventually Conan bests the winged man, stabbing him to death with his own sword. With Jenna now safe, Conan is ready to leave the evil tower in his rearview mirror, and so they do just that, bringing the issue to an end. So this is based on the Robert E. Howard short story of the same name, The Garden of Fear, which was not a Conan story, but one in a series of stories in which a fictional Texan by the name of James Allison, who's confined to a wheelchair, recounts adventures he had been a part of in previous lives. See, he can remember all of these past lives he once lived typically as some sort of barbarian adventurer or another. In this case, The Garden of Fear, the story he tells is the tale of Hunwolf, a golden-haired barbarian of Asgard who rescues his lady friend when she's abducted by a winged man with dark black skin. Oh yeah, and it's a slight bit racist. Sort of. I mean, not as much as some of the other James Allison stories, at least that's the way I understand it. But, uh, all right, look, let me just try to explain as I vomit out all of this shit that's been building up in my head in regard to Robert E. Howard and everything I've been learning about the man since I started Hither Came Conan and how it's begun to make me feel super uncomfortable. I just I just need to get all of this out. And since I honestly don't have a lot to say about this issue, uh, that and the fact that as I was researching the issue, more shit came to light and it just eventually broke that last straw. Well, I figured that this would be the best time to unload. I do have a thing or two to say about the issue, but I'll do that here 
in just a bit. All right. So I knew nothing about Robert E. Howard beyond the fact that he created Conan and wrote a few stories before I began reading his Conan stuff and then decided to start podcasting about the comics. It's only as I read certain stories that I began to think that Howard may have had some racist and, of course, sexist views. In the last episode, I mentioned the Conan story Howard wrote called The Veil of Lost Women, which I had said was racist as hell. I also said that I was planning on talking about it at some point, and I will, not because I would ever recommend such a racist piece of shit story to people, but because I think it's important that we talk about Howard and his racism because I don't really see it talked about anywhere. It's out there, believe me, but you have to specifically search for his name and the words racist or racism to even find it. I mean, based on everything that I've come across over the last few months when I've been looking for information about Howard or particular Conan stories, 99% of every article, podcast episode, or YouTube video fails to bring it up in any way. For example, let's take a brief look at Queen of the Black Coast. This is a story in which Conan falls for a female pirate captain, and based on every single thing I've read, listened to, or watched, it's a highly popular Robert E. Howard Conan tale. However, no one's talking about the, I guess I'll call it subtle racism throughout the book. I mean, I don't think it's subtle, but if it was as obvious as I perceive it to be, then people would be talking about it, right? now. I will say here real quick that when I say that no one is talking about it, that's just my perception based on what I can or can't find online. I have, however, mentioned countless times that I hate doing research and that I'm not good at it, that I have just no patience at all for any of it. So there might be all kinds of articles and and whatnot that is talking about Queen of the Black Coast and the racism therein. And due to my failures as a researcher, I'm just not coming across it. Regardless, Queen of the Black Coast is a pirate story featuring a pirate queen by the name of Belit. She and her crew capture Conan as he is taking passage on another ship. But rather than kill him like they do the others, Belit spares his life because she falls for him and he for her. Love at first sight. Yeah, it's a romance. Anyway, Belit is white and her entire crew are black. That is a bit problematic, and it's not the first time that Howard has taken a prominent white character and put them in a position of power over a group of black characters. And we'll talk about that a bit more when I do my episode on the Veil of Lost Women. But there's more here than Belit having an all black crew that makes me call this story racist. The big problem I have with Queen of the Black Coast is that most every time the men of the crew are referenced in the story, they aren't as a group called the crew or Belit's men or the pirate crew or anything like that. Nope. Most of the time, they're just referred to as a collective as the Blacks. Here are just a few examples. Forty oars on each side drove her swiftly through the water and the low rail swarmed with naked blacks that chanted and clashed spears on oval shields. Or, Belit sprang before the blacks, beating down their spears. Or, 
bodies of the crew and of fallen pirates were cast overboard to the swarming sharks, while wounded blacks were laid in the waist to be bandaged. Or, three of the strongest blacks had gripped the handholes cut into the stone, curiously unsuited to human hands. Or, as he impatiently scanned the grass for the reptile, the giant blacks braced their feet, grunted and heaved with their huge muscles, coiling and straining under their ebon skin. I mean, come on. And not only are there at least four other examples of that, just in that one story, it happens in some of his others as well. Now, I'm sure what most folks will say is that, well, Howard was a product of his time and we have to take that into consideration. And while I know that I have said that at times, I just don't know anymore. It's not like every single white person in the 1930s were racist pieces of shit. And from what I've stumbled across online, Howard had at least one friend that pushed back on him whenever he'd get racist and stuff. So while he certainly would have been surrounded by racism and was more than likely raised to believe that he, as a white man, was superior to all people of color, he also had people in his life that could have influenced him in the other direction had he been willing to listen. So here's how I got to where I am now in regard to how all of this reached a point where I felt I needed to talk about it right now on this episode. See, as I do for each of these episodes after reading Conan the Barbarian number nine, I consulted the book Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian volume one to see what information about the story I could get from Roy Thomas to include here in this episode. That's when I came across this passage in which Roy is talking about the character of James Allison and his past lives. In these past lives, he was typically a barbarian hero called, for example, Hunwolf or Niord or Hyomar, one of those mysterious sons of Arius mentioned in the famous passage from the Numidian Chronicles that appears as the epigraph to the first Conan story. You guys know what he's talking about here. Know, O Prince, that between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the gleaming cities and the years of the rise of the sons of Arius, that's what Roy's talking about. These stories are racial memories, and unfortunately, they share the modern tendency to identify the term Aryan, white, with superior, even though here the only objective is to tell a good story with no political motives. Which, yeah, that may be the case, that the objective of Howard's The Garden of Fear was, as Roy puts it, to tell a good story with no political motives. But still, he gave the bad guy dark black skin. In fact, it isn't the only story Howard wrote in which the bad guy was some sort of monster with dark black skin. Look at Shadows in the Moonlight or Pool of the Black One. I mean, I didn't give it any thought at the time, but now I'm not so sure if that didn't have any kind of racist connotations attached to it. See, when I came across that passage from Roy Thomas's book, I decided that maybe it was time I dug a little deeper into who Howard was. And so I searched for the man by name, but this time I included the word racist, and I came across a couple of interesting articles. The first one is called Robert E. Howard Was a Racist, Deal With It. It was written by author Jason Sanford, and I will put a link in the show notes. Uh, it gave a little information as well as a link to the second article that we'll talk about in a moment. But 
Mainly for me, it helped me deal with this idea of being a fan of a character created by a screaming racist. Basically, while it's difficult at times to separate a creation from its creator, Conan is one of those characters that has grown beyond the character that Howard created. There are so many more Conan stories told by other authors than there are Howard Conan stories at this point, and there are more and more coming. So while some of the Howard tales might paint Conan as a racist, that's not who Conan is today. Now, as an example of Howard writing Conan as a racist, well, that would be the Veil of the Lost Women, in which Conan saves a woman who has been kidnapped by a tribe of black warriors, not because she was in distress, but because she was white and she was in the hands of black men. Again, I'm going to go into much more detail about this on a future episode, but Conan literally says in the Veil of Lost Women, I am Conan, a Sumerian, and I live by the sword's edge, but I am not such a dog as to leave a white woman in the clutches of a black man. <sighs> wow. I mean, yeah, that's, that's not subtle at all. The other article I ran across was called Southern Discomfort, Was Howard a Racist? And it was by Jerry Romeo, which was a shocking, shocking article to read. And the link is in the show notes if you want to read it as well. But after reading that, that's what really made me realize that Howard was a real piece of shit. And having said that, I have to assume that this is going to piss some of you off. And frankly, if I lose some listeners because of it, well, good riddance. Though I know that for some of you, uh, it will have nothing at all to do with racism, but more to do with the fact that I'm talking about such a heavy subject in a podcast about some fun Marvel comics from the 70s. But as I said earlier, I feel like no one else is talking about it and we can't bury our heads in the sand. I mean, it's okay to like Conan. It's okay to be a Conan fan and to love these Marvel comics that I'm talking about because I am surely still a Conan fan. And I am surely enjoying these Marvel comics, but I think it's important for people to know a little something about the man that created the character. For me, well, here's what Jason Sanford says in his article that I heartily agree with. I'll recommend that my kids check out the new Conan the Barbarian novels and comics and even see Arnold's films. My kids will likely enjoy them and they can do so without dealing with Howard's racist baggage. Yeah, so... uh I think I'm about done with all of that for now. And, and honestly, it feels pretty good to get all that off my chest and out of my head for the time being. If you're still here, if you've stuck around, how about we get into the issue just a little bit more? So we'll start with the cover. Very nice, very nice looking Barry Windsor Smith cover. We have this black skinned uh, angel is what he looks like. He, he doesn't look like a demon uh, unless you consider a demon just a black skinned angel, which, hmm, but it, it's a nice looking cover. Uh, Conan is in the sky with this winged man. The winged man has a sword. Uh, Conan appears to be falling. And Jenna is clutching him around the waist. A couple of things I wanted to point out about the story. The art. Again, each issue that, that we've done here, each issue as we're progressing further and further, Barry Windsor, is, it just keeps getting more 
and more like Barry Windsor Smith. It's it just it's just getting better and better. He's really I mean, you can really see him progress into what we will eventually see in, you know, 85, 86 when he does some X-Men books and then eventually gets on what was it? Marvel Comics Presents when they do the Weapon X story, which is some beautiful stuff. But you can kind of see that here. I've noticed that they don't ever give us a credit on who the colorist is. They refer to Barry Windsor Smith in the credits as the artist and then Sal Buscema as the embellisher, which typically means Barry Windsor Smith is the penciler and Sal Buscema is the inker, but they don't mention a colorist at all. And I don't know that they did that at this time. I don't know if the colorist was ever credited much in these books at this time, but I do know that for much of the Barry Windsor Smith art that will come in the the mid 80s, he colored his own stuff. And maybe that's the case here. And that's why they just refer to him as the artist, because he's also coloring these books. Now, looking at the colors in this book, of course, this is part of a collection that was put out over the last couple of years. So I'm sure it's been recolored or at least the colors have been touched up. They they do look very nice. It's 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 a nice blend of colors in a lot of these panels, especially the one after the the winged man swoops down and takes Jenna. And we have like one panel of Conan laying in the grass and he he's looking up with a, a an alarmed look on his face. Not only is that a very nice looking piece of art, the 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 coloring, I really like the coloring in that panel as well. I like that at one point before Jenna is abducted. These hill people provide them with a, a, a knife. It's like a stone knife and a rope and a flint. And Conan ends up having to use each one of these in order to save Jenna. It's almost like a, a video game. He has to acquire certain artifacts before he can take out the big bad at the at the end of the level. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, he travels into this valley where he sees a herd of mastodons or mammoths. They don't they don't say which. They just refer to them as great tusk beasts. And uh, they're drawn to look like mastodons or woolly mammoths. I don't know what the difference is off the top of my head as far as how they're shaped. I know one is shaped a certain way over the other. And in the Barbarian Life book, Roy refers to them as mammoths. So that's that's what I'm going to call them. But again, at the time that he wrote the book, I think, uh, well, I don't know when he wrote the book, but I know there was a time where they were just all called mammoths. Uh, Roy points out that there's a, a moment here after he meets these this this herd of mammoths where Conan goes swimming to get to the other side uh, of this pasture or whatever so he can get into the other valley. But there, one of the panels he has is his head out of the water and the rest of his body is underwater. And they have, well, Barry has drawn like these lines on Conan's body that's under the water. So it's kind of the reflections of the stuff above, you know, around this pool that's, that's, uh, imposed upon Conan's body. It looks, it looks very nice. I think Roy mentioned that it was one of the first times anybody has done that in a comic. I don't know if that's true or not, but Roy certainly seems to think so. I didn't mention in the synopsis that the tower appears to not have any doors or any openings at the bottom of the tower, which would make sense considering that the guy that lives there can fly. So there's really no reason for him to have 
you know, a door down at the bottom. He just flies up to the balcony. But, you know, what if his uh, wings are sore? What if he breaks a wing? How's he supposed to get up there? He didn't think of that, did he? The flowers around the base of the tower are pretty cool. There's the the moment where we are shown that the flowers eat this hill man, suck out all his blood. But Roy tells this story in the book that they, they couldn't actually show that happening, right? Because of the comics code. So the way they got around it was by having this three panel sequence where the flowers are pink. And then in the second panel, they're dark pink. And then in the third panel, they're red. And apparently when they provide the book to the Comics Code Authority to see if it passes muster, they actually provide the pages before they're colored. And typically they would make a note in the margins, especially in a scene like this, that would tell the colorist what to do here, that they want the the flowers to go from pink to red over these three panels. But they left that out. So as far as the Comics Code Authority was concerned, they were just seeing three panels with these flowers. And Roy's kind of basically hinting at that had they known, they possibly would not have let that pass. And so that's how they got it past the uh, the Comics Code Authority. I'm not a big fan of Conan setting fire to the grasslands to cause the mammoths to stampede to then trample over the flowers. I mean, I think it's a clever idea for Conan to do. I'm I'm just not a big fan of setting fire to nature, you know, and, you know, scaring the crap out of these mass, these, these, these mammoths or these mastodons. And I'm sure they got hurt when they were running through this field of flowers, but they, they do say in the book that a lone behemoth might be pulled down by the devil plants, destroyed, devoured, but before the whole rampaging herd, they are no more than flowers. And that's how Conan is able to get to the tower. There's a really great panel after Jenna throws whatever it is she throws at the uh, winged man. Again, I have no clue what this is. It, it's, it's, it's a candle holder or a sculpture or something. But regardless of what it is, there's, there's a moment, uh, 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 a panel it's kind of like, a, it, well, it, it's a close-up of the winged man's face from the side, and he's screaming, and basically Conan has his head in one of his hands. It, it, it's, it's a really neat panel. There's another panel here that Roy points out where Conan and the winged man crash into the room, and he points it out because he said apparently there are um, comic book textbooks or 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 whatnot that, that that teach you how to do comics or whatever there's a certain one or a certain class or whatever that uses that panel as a as an example of a of a good comic book panel uh because there's no text in it at all and then Roy also points out that they didn't use any kind of special effect you know sound text you know like Bathoom or crack or anything like that in any of these Conan issues. And in fact, he also pointed out that they didn't use thought balloons, which was a big thing back then. Everybody was using thought balloons. You don't see them anymore, but for this comic not to use thought balloons and not just this issue, but, but he makes it sound like in all the issues, that was kind of a big deal back then. They were really kind of playing around with the format, you could say. And you know, by not including thought balloons, by not including any of the, the, the sound effects, the big, you know, 
Krakathoom and stuff like that. I think that's, I never noticed. I had no idea. I didn't even notice until he pointed it out. Beyond that, um, that's about all I wanted to say about this issue. There is a moment there at the end after they kill the winged man where Jenna wants to explore the tower because she's just, she, you know, she's very greedy. They write her as a very greedy, money hungry gold digger, basically. And uh, Conan's like, no, let's get out of here. This place is evil. The sooner we get out of here, the better. And we do learn here at the end that there is a door at the bottom of the tower because they are able to leave the tower from the door. We also learn that the plants are now all dead, of course, because the, the big mammoths went through and, and smushed them. Smushed them all. They're all smushed. But that's, I think that's about all I want to say about this issue. So let's do some listeners' feedback. So I got one bit of feedback this week. It comes from Instagram from Sleepy Reader 666, who has a, a great YouTube channel out there where he talks about comics. I'll make sure and include that link in the show notes. But he says in regard to the previous episode, greatly enjoyed this episode. If I had been on the ball, I would have voted for you to cover the new Titan comics as they come out, as that would have been fun to get your in the moment reactions. I love the Barry Smith art from this period, and because of my age, I imprinted on his version of the Hyborian Age and its people. Reading the Carrie Nord versions of the same stories always gave me a sense of uncanny valley when those began to appear, even though Nord was excellent. But you tempted me to take another look at his team up with Mignola. Keep up the fantastic work. I am so pleased every time a new episode appears. That is some great feedback right there, folks. I enjoy any anytime people say nice things about me. That's always the best kind of feedback to get, right? Nobody likes the feedback that goes, boo, you suck. Stop making episodes, which so far, knock on wood, which I'm not going to do because that might make a weird noise into the microphone. So far, I haven't gotten any comments or anything like that. But Sleepy Reader 666, thank you so much for your feedback uh, with your vote. That now makes two votes for talking about the Titan comics here on the show. And frankly, when I was recording an episode of, well, three episodes of the Superman Super Show with my co-host Ed the other day, I don't remember if it was during an episode or between episodes. He, he brought that up and he thought it would be fun if I talked about the, the Titan comics, you know, here on this show as they were coming out. And so uh, I'm going to consider that a vote as well. So now we have three to one votes for talking about the Titan comics on the show. So that's what I'm going to do. and. Not only am I going to do that, that's what you're going to get next week. Instead of Conan the Barbarian issue number 10, you're going to get uh, me talking about issue number one of the new Conan book from Titan because it comes out next week. Hopefully, I'll be able to read it and still be able to get an episode out to you by Friday. I think the only way that I'm going to do that is not to take any notes. I take a lot of notes when I do these episodes, and I think I'm just going to read it. And then just sit down and talk about it without any notes whatsoever. And it's not like I haven't done that before. And those have sometimes made for some fun episodes. So that's what we're going to do next week. Until then, folks, keep them swords close by and never stop treading them jeweled thrones. Bye.
Hither Came Conan is a Stephen or Else production. Find more podcasts at stephenorelse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to stephenorelse at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or Else. And join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. and fight, honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. And much have I done. Join us, will you not? For I am Lothar of the Hill People. Enough talk.